In September of 66 AD, the Emperor of Mighty Rome prepared his entourage for an expedition to the eastern provinces of the Empire. Surely the military and industrial genius of the Roman Emperor would imply that he's going to fight a mighty army, repel filthy barbarians, or crush some insurgents. If not a military excursion though, perhaps he was simply inspecting his dear provinces or instigating large building projects in his influential Greek cities, constructing worthy products of the legendary Roman engineering. Unfortunately, no, the Emperor of Rome was going to Greece as a tourist. And what's worse, the Emperor was not dignified, brave, or frugal like we should expect from the leader of the Romans. The Emperor of the largest multicultural empire in the world was a perverted and selfish boy of the name Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. We, of course, call him Nero. This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 9, The Whole Empire in Rebellion. Nero loved the arts. He loved music, performing, and being celebrated by a crowd. And he's been this way ever since he became emperor at the age of 17. Nero packed up and traveled to Greece in 66 to take part in games, contests, and to gather every artistic award under the sun. Greece was the cultural center of the empire, and the aspiring performer slash emperor would have to travel to the legendary and historic sites on the Greek peninsula if he wanted to be a true performer. Nero wanted to be known as the best artist the world had ever seen, and this was of course easy for him to fabricate. As the emperor, there's really nothing that can be done when you say that you deserve to win a given contest or earn a particular award or accolade. So, every competition was either thrown for him, or the title was forcefully taken by the childish emperor. There are at least two individuals whom Nero executed solely because he feared them as artistic rivals. And I can't, off the top of my head, find another point in history where executions were given for this reason. Just about every second week there were political executions for political rivals in Rome, but artistic rivals being killed by the emperor? Well, that's an entirely Nero unique experience. We've talked at length in episodes 6-8 through eight about the tightrope that Nero walked through his emperorship. Up to and including the conspiracy of Piso in 65, Nero's constant spending kept the public on its side, his generals were winning in the provinces, which kept the army relatively happy, and the senate was scared enough to not revolt, or at least not revolt successfully. Of course though, after a year abroad playing games and learning to dance in Greece, this all started to fall apart, as the particular fear and love that certain parts of the population had for Nero wasn't being earned by the emperor anymore. To keep the ball rolling though, Nero appointed Helius, a freedman, as effectively the reigning emperor in his absence. Helius had the authority to do whatever he wanted in Rome without consulting the emperor, since Nero was of course too busy playing his liar to govern. Helius could hand out punishments, order executions, he could order executions of senators, Helius took full advantage of these powers and became a tyrant that managed to surpass Nero's most cruel days. Helius was nearly instantly hated by just about everyone, and in 67, less than a year after Nero left, Helius was frantically writing to him, begging him to return, since the situation in Rome was getting really dicey. And when Helius tried to violently suppress the dicey situation, well, the general hatred for the imperial administration only grew much more rapidly. By Nero's absence of over a year, the people were no longer bought, the senate was emboldened, and finally Nero surprisingly executed his prominent generals, losing the support of the armies. 
These generals, by the way, committed no crimes. These murders were obviously shocking and cruel, but there is some sort of strategy involved. Nero obviously feared these men, since the power and influence that they have gained from their successes in the provinces could allow them to revolt and kill the emperor. These generals had massive armies, personally loyal to them, and not loyal to the emperor. And also, they've spent years building individual power bases unique from Nero, far away from him out in the provinces. Revolt from these men was a distinct possibility, but Nero didn't handle this situation with the requisite diligence and care, and we'll see some of the results of that later. And if we also consider the fact that Nero's tax collectors were working their butts off trying to make the impossible sums of money that was needed to fix the economy that Nero ruined, well, it should be obvious that the provincials in particular were really upset with their emperor. Finally, by being all the way in Greece, even more distance was put between Nero and his governors in Spain, Gaul, and North Africa, where the first revolts would come from. Nero was so committed to being in Greece, though, that it wouldn't be until December of 67 AD, after spending 14 months in Greece, that Nero responded to Helios' calls to return, and sailed for Italy. Supposedly, Nero only acquiesced because Helios came to Greece personally, to convince him, and he said that there was a conspiracy afoot in Rome, and the emperor needed to return immediately. I do not doubt that a revolt was afoot in Rome, and that the emperor needed to return, However, I do doubt that Helios would have been able to leave the city at all, even for a second. The populace was already on the verge of a revolt. It would have been especially stupid for him to leave, to give them even more space to allow the revolt to happen. He needed to be in the city to suppress it. But, who knows, maybe he did leave, and maybe that's why it all ended so poorly for Nero. Nero first ended up in Naples, quite a bit south of Rome, sometime in January of 68 AD. By this time, Vindex had already been taunting the Senate and Nero for quite a while. He supposedly went so far as to say that Nero was a bad liar player. How could you, Vindex? Even with all those awards that Nero had just won in Greece rightfully, you think he's a bad liar player? Don't lie to yourself, Vindex. You're better than that. Anyways, Nero triumphantly entered Naples and celebrated games, of course. He celebrated far into February, with no rush to return to Rome. And it was during these festivities in February that he heard that the governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, Gaius Julius Vindex, had launched his revolt. In the months leading up to the revolt, the native Gallic Vindex had contacted many governors to create support for his rebellion. He contacted the procurator of Egypt, Alexander, who had only recently been appointed by Nero. I can assume many things about Alexander, and one thing I can assume about him for sure is a motivation for his revolt. Firstly, the economic stress that the emperor created was likely hitting Egypt really, really hard since it was quite a rich and powerful province that Italy relied on for its food. Secondly, though, Alexander had worked closely with one of the generals that was executed by Nero in Greece. So Alexander was simply waiting around for a revolt so he could join up with them. And he would end up joining with Vindex and Galba and then eventually Vespasian. Vindex also contacted the governors of Spain, the future emperors Galba and Otho. Otho was obviously ready for a revolt any time. He had been sent to Spain only a bit less than a decade earlier, and he understood that it was more or less exile because Nero wanted to steal his wife. Galba was at this point the next most experienced general in the empire, and no doubt expected his head on the chopping block of Nero next after those previous generals. He supposedly even started worsening his administration more as to not intimidate Nero. 
For now, though, he had no particular reason to act on revolting, but he supported the gods in general. Vindex also contacted the governors in charge of North Africa, the rest of Gaul, and no doubt other provinces, including the Balkan legions. He got tacit support from all these centers of power, and they were able to theoretically flip the switch and launch an empire-wide revolt. They could shut off Rome's food supply, which came from North Africa and Egypt, and then an army could be launched from Spain into Italy, effectively sieging the entire province. With this plan, Nero would realistically be deposed within months, if not sooner. Of course, in February, it was only Vindex's rebellion that had been launched, and he was simply calling on Galba to revolt as well, but for now, Galba wasn't responding. Since Galba wasn't responding, Nero didn't really have much to fear. Vindex wasn't trying to claim the empire for himself, so he had no armies that were launching on Rome right away. It seems to be the case that Nero was rather cocky about this, and was simply excited that he would get to plunder Gaul for cash and retribution for their insolence. When Nero eventually did travel to Rome to logistically handle this Gallic revolt, he didn't even discuss it with the Senate when he got there. Now, both the ancient sources I read for the death of Nero talked about this specific incident, and I just love it so much that I have to share it. Apparently, when he returned to Rome, Nero skipped on the Senate so he could give a lecture to the leading citizens of the city about the mechanical complexity of certain water-powered organs, the instrument, that he had just acquired. He told them how complicated they were and the differences between a few models and how they were able to make much louder and better sounds than the previous models. And that's such a fun anecdote. I think it perfectly sums up the reign of Nero. He avoided talking about a literal challenge to his life so he could tell people about his new musical instrument. It's one of the only anecdotes that we have about the young emperor that isn't just him being cruel or mean, and those are probably all exaggerated. I believe this wholeheartedly. In this antidote, Nero is being just dumb, arrogant, and naive, and that really sums him up. More than just being cruel, which is frequently what Nero is reduced to being. He's slightly more complicated than that. Nero's big problem was that he did not fit with the Roman values for a leader, and that made his rule challenging. At some point not long after February, maybe only a couple weeks after, the governor of Germania Superior, Lucius Virginius Rufus, advanced on Vindex ultimately resulting in Vindex's army being destroyed and his suicide. From what I could gather, Rufus advanced on Vindex simply because he felt it was the safest thing to do in his position. At the moment, Nero has killed several successful generals from frontier provinces for being too powerful, and surely this was weighing on Rufus's mind. He was in charge of Germania Superior, a frontier province with one of the largest military contingents. His military was far greater than the forces under Vindex, so defeating the uprising was an easy task. The calculation that Rufus may have made is that any given revolt may succeed, but most fail, so it's worthwhile to stamp out any rebellion you see, since that gets you on the right side of the Emperor. At the moment, Vindex has revolted, has not claimed the Emperorship, and Galba has not taken up the call. So, Rufus might as well take Vindex out, then... Rufus would do everything in his power to maintain his life and position if Galba came around to revolting. In this case, Rufus declared that he would allow any popular revolt to come to power, that he would step aside effectively if Galba attempted to revolt. He may have even gone so far as to say that the incident with Vindex was his troops just overextending themselves and he didn't make the order. He didn't even try to kill Vindex, which can help the relationship with Galba. We'll see more of what Rufus does in the future, but for now, 
The defeat of Vindex gave Nero the fuel he needed to be really cocky about his position. Rufus was now Nero's favorite guy, and Galba was contemplating suicide because he thought the rebellion was over, and Nero celebrated the fact that he was going to reign forever. On the 8th of June, just two months later, Nero was comfortably eating his lunch. It was no doubt extravagant, and I like to imagine that he was trying to figure out how to bring his stage and performance equipment on his retribution campaign to Gaul. While he was eating his lunch, he was handed a letter by one of his servants. He opened the letter, read it once through, and upon finishing reading the letter, the young emperor flew into a terrified rage. He broke several glasses, and he knocked over the table, and no doubt said the most foul curses that came to his mind. The letter was warning the Emperor that Galba was now in revolt, and he's on his way, with his army, to Rome. Nero instantly concluded that he was as good as dead. To explain Galba's change of heart, since he didn't revolt in February, it's simply that Galba felt that he had no other option at the moment. Around the time of the revolt of Vindex, Galba learned that Nero attempted to order his death. With someone also calling upon him to become emperor, Galba knew that the wrath of the emperor was eventually going to come his way. He was enemy number one. He was going to become an enemy of the state, and he might as well ride on the inertia of Vindex's rebellion to hopefully save himself. That's the best chance he has. Better to revolt now than to attempt to revolt later when it's too late. Vindex had been crushed, yes, but Rufus was going to stand aside if a large revolt came through. Therefore, the path to Italy was open, and he had support of pretty much the entire empire. Galba didn't yet feel super confident, and simply just started preparing his armies in Spain. Nero, back in Rome, was instantly panicking. He ordered a poison to be given to him, and he placed it in a nice golden box. Nero ordered his favorite freedman to prepare a fleet and a legion. Then he tried to get some nearby soldiers to flee the city with him, and they literally laughed in his face. This is when Nero started to be really terrified. He decided reasonably to sleep on it, and headed to the palace. He awoke at sometime around midnight, to find the palace empty. Even his golden box with the poison had somehow vanished. Once even his servants suddenly disappeared, he couldn't even find someone around to kill him. Nero would eventually stumble upon a freedman, who was willing to take Nero to his personal villa, a couple miles away. Nero immediately started the journey, wearing only what he had been sleeping in. And while on the road, Nero and the freedmen had to sneak past a group of soldiers who were looking for the emperor to kill him. Nero didn't know it yet, but while he was collecting his thoughts in the palace, the senate met once they had heard of the revolt, immediately declared Galba emperor, and declared Nero an enemy of the state. What tipped the scales was that the Praetorian Guard was promised a large amount of money in support of Galba and to abandon Nero, and they jumped at the opportunity. They had no love for Nero, and they liked their money. This meant that the Senate had the military presence in the city to support them. Nero had no one. Nero had been absolutely and entirely abandoned. The only place that was safe for Nero in the whole empire was a freedman's villa. He went from emperor to criminal, in a matter of hours. Once Nero arrived at the villa, he learned of the Senate's decision, and the freedmen whom he traveled with also informed the former emperor that the traditional punishment was that he be beaten to death. 
All that Nero requested in his final hour was that a grave be dug for him. Nero spent his last moments struggling to end his life with a blade, and he couldn't build up the guts to do it for quite a while. And it wasn't until he literally heard the horses approaching in the distance that Nero built up the courage to do it, or maybe had the freedmen do it for him. The horsemen found the young man bleeding from the neck, and they tried to revive him to ensure that the proper punishment was given, but Nero couldn't be saved. The emperor died after getting his final words out between his tears, dead and so great an artist. The emperor of the Roman Empire was dead, the last of the Julio-Claudians, the last of the line tracing back to Julius Caesar, was gone. It was early in the morning, on June 9th, 68 AD, and Rome was forever changed. Galba heard of the news of Nero's death and the ratification of his rule by the Senate and decided to pack up and head to Rome immediately. This was no doubt extremely relieving news, as not long ago, Galba thought it was all falling to pieces. But fate turned the right way for the elder Servius Sulpicius. Honestly, if it hadn't been for Nero committing suicide and the Senate's ratification, Galba's revolt may have failed. He picked up his honorage, including Otho and a particular group of advisors, and marched through France and into Italy. It was a safe journey, and no battles were fought. He did, however, encounter Lucius Virginius Rufus. Rufus came to the new emperor personally, and Galba took him with his honorage. In a bit, I'll talk more about this, but for now, let's talk about the man of the hour, the new emperor, Servius Sulpicius Galba. As mentioned before, nearly all of the empire already supported Galba, and anyone who hadn't already pledged their support. There were no objections. At this time, Vespasian from Judea in the east dispatched his son Titus to pledge their support. Galba's universal acceptance across the entire empire was due to the fact that he was the prominent Roman of the day. He was old, aristocratic, and extremely successful in his career. In this respect, he was the obvious choice to be emperor. Everyone thought that the old and supposedly wise statesman was an excellent choice for the emperorship, and it's common to say that everyone thought that he would be a great emperor until he actually became emperor. This is because Galba's successes and personality came with some baggage that wasn't fully realized until he was actually in charge of everything. He's extremely cheap, overly serious, overly strict, and entirely result-oriented. He'd punish very harshly, and pay only what he absolutely had to, and sometimes didn't even pay that much. This all is a good attitude for a general, since he'll always get on the right side of the emperor calling the shots, especially when it's Nero who doesn't particularly care about the consequences of someone's actions. This is because Galba's tactics and administration may have left something to be desired, but he was always able to accomplish tasks that the emperors wanted. There may have been some bad side effects to it and some disappointed people, but he got the jobs done, and so he rose to prominence really fast. This of course became a bad thing once he became emperor, since it seems that he didn't particularly care for administration in general, and likely preferred leading armies. It's said that he purposefully didn't administrate amazingly so as to not attract attention from Nero, since the high quality men of the empire would scare the emperor and be murdered. I personally think that he just didn't care for it, since it seems like a needless way to not attract attention from the emperor, there's many other ways to go about it. 
Also, once he became emperor, he effectively appointed three men to govern in his place and make all the decisions for him, and for his short reign, whatever at least two of the three of them agreed on would become imperial policy. And the emperor himself would effectively do nothing. This is a really bad idea, since these three were more like devils on the emperor's shoulder than angels. This also made the administration really inconsistent and generally incompetent. Like I said, Galba was able to freely march from Spain to Rome. Given that Nero was already dead, there was no one to resist him. And it was during this march that everyone started to realize that they overestimated Galba by a lot. Supposedly, as he made his way through Spain and France and into Italy, Galba would punish towns that were slow to support him. Executions were even doled out to local administrators. He would execute Roman citizens and then extend it to executing their entire family. This would have been needlessly cruel for any crime, let alone a crime such as not accepting him as emperor fast enough. Even men who had launched violent revolts would usually not have their families executed alongside them. This is just unthinkable. But who knows how many times this actually happened, or the specifics of each event. As Galba approached Rome, he encountered something of a legion. That legion was made up of those sailors that Nero sent his favorite freedmen to create right after learning of the revolt. They simply requested that the new emperor keep their rank and status as a legion created by the emperor, since they were rightfully created by the emperor, and they wanted to keep their jobs. But Galba was so furious that this small army would stand in his way that he ordered his cavalry to charge them, and then he massacred a tenth of the offending soldiers. This is just appalling, and punishments so harsh and cruel were just outdated by the standards of the day and completely unthinkable. Nobody liked seeing the new emperor ordering such harsh punishments. The emperor was supposed to be more measured than that. And once he arrived in Rome, mass amounts of executions were ordered for Nero's lackeys and many others. Cleansing the previous administration is a normal and expected event in violent coups. But this purge was excessive in the eyes of the citizens of Rome. No trials and no due course was taken, and this was extended far beyond the really offensive members of Nero's administration. The emperor would simply order executions when and where he pleased and for anyone. This was rather extreme and offended the aristocrats in Rome, who thought that supporting Galba would mean that they're putting one of their own on the throne, and reasonable administration would return to the imperial government. The Senate and the people of Rome saw their new emperor committing acts that reminded them of nothing but Nero himself, which was obviously a bad thing to imply to the public since they just got that guy killed. By the end of 68 AD, less than half a year later, Galba's universal support all but withered away. Titus and the rest of Vespasian's delegation never even reached Galba before he was overthrown. This is remarkably fast. In normal times, the populace would have still been celebrating the death of Nero at this point, but they had already gotten over Galba. He just made so many errors so fast. Or should I say, his advisors made many errors so fast. Galba made two specific large errors that individually led to his downfall. The rest of the unpopularity and mistakes simply fanned the flames that allowed the small revolts to completely envelop him. Firstly, he essentially sealed his fate when he refused to pay the Praetorian Guard that bribe that they were offered to support him in the last days of Nero. Galba was extremely cheap, and you could argue principled. He would refuse to bribe troops to support him. Galba believed that bribes should never be given out. This is a reasonable thing to believe in, and sticking with it is a very commendable thing to do, but honestly it was just straight up ignorant and stupid to not make this payment. 
it was the Praetorian Prefect who made the promise to the Praetorian Guards, not Galba, and so he felt that he didn't need to live up to it. But regardless of the moral quality of the Emperor, the Praetorian Guards will kill him if they don't like him and aren't paid what they feel entitled to, and they feel entitled to this money. For God's sake, this already happened once with Caligula. Galba should have swallowed his pride and made this payment, it may have been enough to keep him in power. There were many other factors at play, but it would have been nice at least to have the Praetorian Guard on your side. In the next episode, we'll see how bad it got. But for now, let's talk about the second large mistake, for which we need to go back to my favorite, Lucius Virginius Rufus. Rufus was brought to Rome with Galba's entourage as something of a political hostage. Rufus's army had defeated Vindex, which was obviously a negative thing for his relationship with Galba, who was Vindex's ally. What's worse, though, is that after the defeat of Vindex, Rufus's army attempted to hail him emperor. Rufus was survival-minded, and attempting to become emperor was an obviously dangerous proposition, so he said no. But just being hailed as emperor was dangerous enough. This showed the entire empire that you have the qualities to become emperor, and this shows that anyone who is dissatisfied with the current emperor should rally behind you because you have the requisite authority. So this certainly put him squarely in Galba's headlights as the main rival for power after Nero. It's even likely that Rufus's army was more powerful than Galba's, so Galba would have been right to worry. The first right choice that Rufus made was to declare that he would support any popular replacement for the emperor. This means that when Galba was hailed emperor by the senate, Rufus promised allegiance to him. This is a good start, but would still scare most insecure emperors since at any time Rufus could turn around and take the empire for himself. And of course, Galba was the most insecure of emperors, with only like half the empire supporting him and a small Spanish army. It could all fall apart really, really fast. The second brilliant move that Rufus made was that as Galba marched through Gaul to Rome, Rufus met up with him, alone. He left his army in his province, which would silently announce to the new emperor that he had no intention of revolting and that he could seize him if he would like. And whether or not Rufus was hoping to go back to his province, Galba would smartly not allow that and forced Rufus to tag along with the imperial entourage. Rufus could not be killed, since he was too loved and had a massive army sitting not far away who would violently retaliate if he was harmed, not to mention that Rufus gave himself up to the new emperor so it would be a bad look to execute him or imprison him. So Galba split the difference and simply forced him to return to Rome with him, where he would stay until his death a bit less than 30 years later. In his stead, Galba appointed new governors of Germania. Aulus Vitellius, the future emperor, was sent to Germania Inferior. Cordonius Flaccus was sent to Germania Superior. What's counterintuitive about these placements, but somewhat logical, is that most emperors would appoint relatively incapable men to the most important and dangerous provinces. In a way, it was the job of the emperor to appoint the least capable man who will accomplish a given task. This is because if a particularly capable and charismatic man is put in charge of a province like Germania Superior, which has a large army, they may end up like Rufus, winning a big battle and having their troops hail them as emperor. If you instead put someone in charge who could barely hold it all together, you wouldn't have to worry. What you would run the risk of, however, is losing that province or having an invasion. That's a risk the emperors were willing to take since a revolt could mean losing the entire empire, but a bad governor means losing the province. And they could always just march their large imperial army to support it, and Germania Superior is quite close to Italy, so it was the safe thing to do. Flaccus and Vitellius were chosen because they were particularly unremarkable. 
I don't want to slander Flaccus. He was a consul. He was clearly a capable and loyal administrator, but he was given an impossible task. He was handed a two and a seven and told to beat two aces. His province had a seditious army, whom he turned around and attempt to declare another emperor. He had some of Rome's most dangerous enemies just on his borders, and he even had a revolt of locals within his own province. The soldiers were already super upset because they felt they hadn't been properly rewarded for their work against Vindex, and they were disappointed by the administration of the new emperor. And Flaccus just couldn't keep this all together. And so on the 1st of January 69 AD, the army under his control refused to swear allegiance to Galba. They, however, didn't turn their own commander into the new emperor. The legions of Germania Superior had heard of the commander of Germania Inferior, Aulus Vitellius. Vitellius was notorious for being one of the guys. He would play games with his soldiers and allow any of them to tag along to his extravagant meals. Vitellius was truly incompetent, but his soldiers loved him, and so they just swept him up and took him down to Italy in revolt. And Vitellius just went along with the hype. His administration was led by a couple legates, who spearheaded the revolt, and they pretty much just had the aristocratic Vitellius as their figurehead. And it was with the proclaimment of Vitellius in early January 69 that the revolt along the Rhine began, and now every single province in the Western Empire had been part of a revolt, with only Greece and Vespasian staying quiet so far. Soon enough, they'll get really loud. That will be all for this episode. Until next time, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and it will respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I donate to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student, who's attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once. Before I go, though, I realize that some of you may be thinking, isn't Vitellius going to be our third emperor of 69 AD? Why is he in revolt before our second emperor, Otho, even comes into the picture? Excellent question. This question will be answered in the next episode. In two weeks, we will learn about the political climate in Rome and that it sways so fast that in June of 68, Nero is declared an enemy of the state. But by January of 69, the former confidant of Nero, Otho, is gladly allowed to become emperor. It's quite a shocking turn of events, and I'm excited to talk about Otho in particular, since we get a lot of personality out of him, which we don't really get with Galba and Vitellius. Next episode, we'll see the best story arc in Roman history, as a young boy started his life as the loyal servant of the debauched Nero, but will end his life by sacrificing himself so the bloody wars could end, and so Rome could end up in peace. I'll see you then. Thank you.